0: Well, today is the third Sunday of Advent. It's known as Gaudet Sunday. Gaudet Sunday is the Sunday of joy, the Sunday of rejoicing. It emphasizes, maybe more than other weeks of Advent, the joy and the anticipation that's associated with the second coming of Christ. As Pastor Mark mentioned last week, in more modern traditions, the four Sundays of Advent have become hope Peace, joy, and love. But historically, we know that the four Sundays of Advent were actually death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So Merry Christmas, sanctuary. And if that isn't enough, we come to the gospel text today highlighting one of the key figures of this season of Advent, John the Baptist. And I bet that John the Baptist wrote the best Christmas cards. You brood of vipers! Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And happy new year to you and yours. But really, I think there seems to be, across churches that generally celebrate Advent, I think there's this healthy reorientation back to what the season of Advent is about. That it's not appetizers on the way to the entree of Christmas, but it is a main course in a season all by itself. It's a season that challenges us here at the beginning of the liturgical year to take stock of ourselves, to ask a few questions of ourselves, questions like what kind of people do we want to be? And maybe more importantly, what kind of people has God invited us to be? Advent is a season for all seasons. Karl Barth once said, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but the season of Advent? That's because it's not just a season that follows some of the historical moments of the life of Christ, but unlike all of the other seasons, it actually looks beyond history altogether, takes us out of just past events and remembering the sequential moments of Jesus' life and actually invites us to look beyond history, waiting for Christ's coming again. It's a celebration of three different dynamics, three different dimensions all at once. It reminds us of the past, God's initiative toward the world in Christ. It points us to the future of God's coming kingdom, and it grounds us in the present. It grounds us in a cruciform, cross-shaped life of love for the world in the present. So it's not only a season about the future, but about how the reality of that promised hope actually invites us to live in the present. Advent rightly places the church in this in between space, space that Fleming Rutledge would call the collision of the ages, that this is the space that we're called to make and to prepare for the conquering love of God in the world. Advent reminds us that this is the space we're to occupy. Thomas Merton once said, into this world, this demented inn in which there is absolutely no room for him at all, Christ comes uninvited. And this is the good news of Advent, that God's breaking into the world is not dependent on us. God's rule and reign in the world had nothing to do with our belief or our practice, but everything to do with God's love. This means that we're not called to be the change agents, but that God through the Holy Spirit is the agent of change in the world. We're not responsible to change anything, but to sniff out what it is that God is doing and to participate in that kind of work. Our response is simply to place ourselves where God is already at work. We live without fear We live in faith that the cosmic change of regime has already been accomplished. That the kingdom of God is here already, but not yet. That the kingdom of God has been established once and future. This is the kind of space we're called to occupy. Historically, Advent has been a dark season for the church. It's a season of acknowledging the hopelessness of humanity and helping itself. And so we wait for the only possibility. The only possibility that we have to hope for is the impossibility of the intervention of God. This is part of the apocalyptic invasion of the world announced by John the Baptist, that if anything is going to save us, if anything is going to save us, it has to come from outside ourselves because nothing can save us that is possible. Dr. Rutledge would say that the hope is that all of the Advent preparation in the world would not be enough unless God were favorably disposed of us in the first place. Remember, we did nothing to spark the breaking in of God into the world. Again, we are not the agent of change. Advent is about waiting for this impossible possibility that Christ really has overcome the powers of sin and death and darkness. That's the hope of Advent. And just because we're not the agent of change doesn't mean that we do nothing. This is a reminder of Advent, that we don't simply do nothing, but we remember that we are both bearing witness to and waiting expectantly for the coming of the Lord. It's both active and passive in announcing the message of the age to come. So on this third Sunday of Advent, the day that we focus on heaven or joy, we find this character, John the Baptist. And John is reminding us that we must prepare the way of the Lord. This is the message of all of Advent, preparation, preparing the way. And he says that the mountains will be made low, that the valleys will be filled, and the paths will be made straight. This is why Advent can be a challenging season for so many of us to come to terms with. Because the mountains being brought low is not good news for those of us on top of the mountain. Advent is a not so subtle reminder that the kingdom of God is built on equality. It's built on equality, unlike any of the broken systems that we can muster together. And this is the world that Christ crashes into, again, uninvited and unexpected. Even when he comes, we get it wrong. Christ comes and we mistake him for something he's not. Think about that. We expect a king a Messiah, and he comes as a baby in a manger. We expect political power, and instead Jesus climbs onto the cross. In Revelation 5, John the Apostle is told by the angels in this vision to turn and behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Explicitly, turn and see the lion of the tribe of Judah. This produces a certain image for us, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he looks, what does he find? He doesn't find a lion. He turns and he sees a lamb that is slain. It seems that every time we expect Jesus to look a certain way for us, to do a certain thing for us, it inevitably looks completely different. If Advent is about anything, it's about training ourselves to look for him in the places where he's most likely to be, which is oftentimes where we least expect to find him. This means that we must do more than simply go through the Advent calendar. We must develop in ourselves an Advent heart, to be a people of Advent. I think it's important, and this is the first time this has ever dawned on me, which should tell you something about how dim I am, that John the Baptist was the son of Zechariah. And I'm sure all of you could stand up right now and give a summary of our our, uh, Gospel According to series that we did over the summer, and specifically my sermon on the Gospel According to Zechariah and what his message was to the people of God. If you remember, he says that the future coming kingdom of God will only come, will only be realized when God's people are faithful to the call to be God's people. That the Israelites are asking the question, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And Zechariah looks back at the people and he says, will you become people who are ready to participate in God's kingdom? He answers their question with a question. That's less about when his kingdom will actually come and more about are we really ready to participate in this kind of kingdom? And this is what Advent is about about taking stock of our lives, asking ourselves this question Will we be people who are ready to participate in this kind of kingdom? And John the Baptist, then likewise, he stands by the waters and he pronounces, Prepare the way of the Lord. It is coming. Ready or not, here it is. The kingdom is at hand. And so what does this mean for us? What's at stake for us? Advent does ask us to take stock, to remember who and whose we are and the church's mission in the world, the body of Christ's mission in the world. Gordon Lathrop, he was a professor of liturgy at the Lutheran Theological Seminary. He wrote a book, called the priest. And it's about our gatherings, and it's about some of the form and function of Christian worship. And in this book he writes, the most important symbol of Christ in the room is not the minister, is not the altar, is not the cup of wine or the bread or the water of the font. It is the assembly, the body of Christ. This, you sitting here today, are the most important symbol of the body of Christ, of the image of Jesus. And so part of what it means to be Christian, part of what it means to be followers of Christ is that we have a responsibility to participate in the assembly, in being the body of Christ together. I can't remember who it was that said, Pastor Mark, maybe you can help me that the church is flawed and it's imperfect and made up of broken people, but there is no other place to be Christian. There's no other place to be Christian than among your brothers and sisters. Unfortunately, I think our sense of the privatization of our faith, our sense of individualism has totally distorted what we believe about the corporateness of our faith of what we really are to one another, our responsibility to one another. There was a family that has come to Sanctuary more recently, and I was, I was talking with them a couple weeks ago, and I just wanted to find out a little bit more about who they are and where they're from and what is their story. And they said to me, you know, we started coming to Sanctuary over the summer, and it was a really hard decision for us to make to leave our old church and to come to a new church. And if I didn't actually say it out loud, I definitely thought it in my mind, I thought, well, it better have been. What does it say about us when we can flippantly leave one church and go to another church? (laughs) There are things that we are to one another, things that we owe to one another that if it's easy for us to move on and to move out, it's likely because we don't see ourselves correctly. We don't understand who we are to one another. And I'm not saying that if you're experiencing abuse or if you're experiencing manipulation or if you're being treated poorly that you should just sit there and take it. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that oftentimes we leave or we detach from our church communities simply because our preferences aren't being realized. It leads to a shallow kind of community. So if we consider our gatherings and what we do here on Sunday mornings, and the best representation of Jesus is not in our songs, it's not in our preaching, it's not the bread or the cup, but if the best representation of Jesus is the assembly, is the very act of gathering itself. This means most of the time the image of Jesus is realized in obscurity. Not on stages, Not behind microphones, but in this obscure, unusual, eclectic gathering of human beings. I think this is what Paul is talking about in Philippians when he writes, Let each of you look not to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This strange, virtually invisible way in which God made his appearance in the world, is the guide to the Christian life. Let this same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So this means that our gatherings are about you, but they're not about you. That they're about us becoming the people of God together for the sake of the world. We gather and we pray for a still coming day, a hoped-for event known as the day of the Lord. This is the hope. But even while we pray and we bring our petitions, there are signs among us that this longed-for day has already begun in the life of the community itself. I want to make sure we hear that, that we pray and we hope for a day in the future. But the reality of that future is actually being made known to us today, There are things that are promised about that future that we are experiencing when we gather. And only when we gather do we experience this. Here it is, that the signs of this longed-for day has already dawned on the church, is found in the word of forgiveness and the bread of a meal. This is the sign that the dawn of a new age has already begun on the church. One translation of the Lord's prayer reads, give us today the bread of the feast before your face. The feast before your face. This means that we trust that God is free to make the community's meal in Christ now. That it's a beginning of the life-giving feast that's promised for the end of all things. And every week we come and we prepare a meal as a sign that the life of Christ is, the life that he promised us has already started. This is why it's important to remember there are people missing today. People that this table is prepared for who are not going to be here to participate in this meal. Because the life that Christ has promised us has already started and this is a sign that it's here. There are people that this meal is prepared for who aren't here to receive it. But even so, we are free to celebrate his resurrection. We're free to do that, to celebrate the risen Christ week after week after week, in spite of the death and the loss and the grief and the suffering and the joy and the disappointment that we experienced the week before. And in the same way that the bread and the cup are a sign of the dawn of this new age, so too is the word of forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, we could also pray, forgive us our trespasses, now with your final forgiveness, just as we are turning to each other, ministering forgiveness to those who sin against us. Remember, Forgiveness is primarily a thing that we hope for from God at the end of all things. But somehow we experience forgiveness now. Think about that. Something that's not supposed to be present until the end of all things is somehow made available to us in the gathering. It's a glimpse of the presence of the end of all things, caught here, caught now. So what we realize in our gatherings is that God is already making us the community of the end. That's what we do here. We are a community that is centered around God's promised life-giving meal for the world, brought on by an invitation of a word of forgiveness. Importantly enough, this is not about escaping the world. We're not escapists. We're not about escaping our present situation about numbing ourselves to the realities of life. But to pray the Lord's Prayer, as we will hear in just a moment, is actually to identify, just as Christ did, with human need, with human sorrow, with sin, with death. It's not escaping the world, but actually full participation of, with God in the work of the world. Not escaping it, but fully participating in it. God does not save humanity for heaven. He renews the earth. God does not save humanity for heaven. He renews the earth. And this is the work that we're participating, in. we're participating in, that we're invited to join God in this kind of work. We're called to participate in that renewal by sniffing out what God is doing, knowing that he is the agent of change. We are not the agent of change that will bring all things to rights, even if we don't live to see it. So this work of extending forgiveness and offering bread is a sign of the once and future kingdom of God. If we are people embracing signs and realities that belong to a future kingdom, then we are becoming and Advent people. People that can stand in solidarity with human suffering, but also proclaim this is not the end. The pain that you experience is not the realest thing you can experience. This is what it means to be a resurrection people. That even when you're driving to work on Tuesday and you're just wondering what is the point of it all. (laughs) That that's not the deepest part of reality. That the thing that holds up all of the other things is this resurrection life that we participate in, is the joy of our salvation, is realizing there is a future coming kingdom that we are helping to bring to bear today. We know that it's not the end because we catch a glimpse of it. We catch a glimpse of it every time we gather, every time we come to the table, every time we turn to our brothers and our sisters and we say these words of grace and peace. I hope we never get sick of saying grace and peace to one another. I have a five-year-old daughter, and I have to remind her over and over and over again, say please, Say thank you. Why do we do that? Not because we're about nice manners. I'm not just trying to teach her to be polite. But when she gets into that rhythm of when she receives good gifts to say thank you, someday when she's older, she's going to receive a gift and she is going to well up with gratitude and say from the deepest parts of her being, thank you. And I want her to experience that kind of gratitude. This is what we're doing here. To turn to your brother and to your sister and to say grace and peace means that there's going to come a day when your brother and your sister is going to need a word of peace and you will be there to turn to them and say it with all the muster in your soul and they're going to feel it in their bones. They're going to need a word of grace to know that even when everything else is falling apart in their life, God's undeserved, unmerited favor is still available to them. This is why we do what we do. We believe in a future that is flush with forgiveness and a feast. So, what's at stake? The temptation we face, I think, is to come to this same place and to sing the same songs, but nothing about how we care for our neighbor actually changes. The goal is not to talk about Christ, but the goal is to be Christian. The goal is not searching for some ambiguous pathway to peace, but to understand peace as the path itself. The goal is not to change the world, but to stand as a faithful witness of an entirely different world. I can't tell you how many people I missed out on loving, simply because I thought my job as a Christian was to change them. I remember my youth pastor, God love this man, coming to us Sunday night after Sunday night, telling us that our job as Christian teenagers in high school was to take back our schools for Jesus. Do you know what you miss out on when you think your job is to take back your school for Jesus? You miss out on actually caring for people. We are not the agent of change. God is the agent of change. All we have to do is show up and sniff out what he's doing in the world. And most likely, the thing that he's doing is offering a word of forgiveness and feeding the hungry. John the Baptist, he lays out this lifestyle for those who are committed to preparing the way, to making straight paths for the day of the Lord. Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. If you're a tax collector, don't take more than is required. If you're a soldier, don't take bribes or abuse your authority. He doesn't tell them to stop being soldiers. He doesn't tell them to stop being tax collectors or to find a new vocation. But to do the job he's required to do faithfully. I think there's a way that we can confuse generosity with philanthropy. Because what John the Baptist didn't say is if you have two coats and you see someone with none, go buy that person another coat. No, he says, take the one off of your back and give it to the person. I think so many times we think that we would become generous people so long as our pocketbook allowed us to be. That's not generosity. It's philanthropy. We're not called to be philanthropists. We're called to be generous people. So this means that Advent is not simply about waiting, and it's not simply about rejoicing, in what it promises us, but it's about learning how to live while we wait. In this way, bread and forgiveness are not just ideas, they are practices. They involve us in acting the things that we believe God is doing and will do in the future because we've witnessed it here. We can believe in our bones that this is the future God has planned for the world because we experience it now. If we don't believe that God has forgiven us, we will never learn to forgive our enemies. And the world needs more enemies forgiven. These practices, they begin here. They begin in corporate worship through common prayer, acts of mutual forgiveness in this Eucharistic meal, but then our hearts and our lives are invited to follow by forgiving others and exercising hospitality in all of our meals. These practices of bread and forgiveness, they are non-distancing practices. They're non-distinguishing practices. They don't separate us from the rest of humanity. They actually plunge us into the heart of the very thing it means to be human. They connect us all in bread and forgiveness. When we live in this way, we start to embody what John the Baptist means when he says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. To cut the trees down is to knock down all of the powers, all the systems, all of the structures that rule the world over and against the kingdom of God. To cut down the trees is to reclaim territory and spaces where the kingdom is made welcome. But to be sure, we will never clear any forests, so long as we don't offer bread to the hungry and forgiveness to our enemies. The hard reality is that we don't often want God to forgive our enemies, especially in a culture that's so set on determining who is us and who is them and who is in and who is out. Because this is the way of the world in which Christ cannot abide. But still we pray, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. An unforgiving world is a cold world. And we ought to be spring for people with winter shut up in their bones. As Bishop Ed would call daffodil people. So maybe today you're sitting there and you're thinking you don't really know how to forgive or how to pray that your enemies might be forgiven. I want to offer us this prayer from Stanley Hauerwas. If you would just close your eyes and hear this prayer. Forgiving, Lord... I do not want my enemies forgiven. I want you to kill them, as sometimes prays the psalmist. Actually, I would prefer to pray that you punish them rather than kill them, since I would like to watch them suffer. Also, I fear losing my enemies, since my hates are more precious to me than my loves. If I lost my hates, my enemies, how would I know who I am? Yet you have bent us toward reconciliation that we may be able to pass one another Christ's peace. It is a terrible thing to ask of us. I am sure I cannot do it, but you are a wily God able to accomplish miracles. May we be struck alive With the miracle of your grace, even to be reconciled with ourselves. Amen.